This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Welcome to Property Patter. I'm Lauren Fraser and I'm joined today by Richard Flenley and Emma Priest of our Real Estate Disputes team. Today we're looking at the tricky topic of rate clauses and we'll be discussing the top five traps for both landlords and tenants to be aware of when they want to exercise a break. These are issues that we deal with frequently and we've seen a particular rise as a result of the pandemic and an increase in working from home. As a result, many employers have reviewed their property investments and made decisions about whether or not they want to stay in their property long term. So many leases contain break clauses in lots of different forms. And the critical point is to follow exactly what the lease says. A break clause will allow either the landlord, the tenant, or sometimes both parties to terminate the lease prior to the expiry of the term and often subject to a number of conditions. The break might have to be a specific date in the term or it could be triggered by a particular event or you could see a rolling break which can be exercised at any time during a specified period in the lease. The break clause will specify the notice period which has to be given which is likely to be something like not less than three, six, twelve months. Break clauses must be strictly complied with and as a result are frequently contested because the margins for error are very low and the implications of the mistake are significant, particularly where there is only one chance to terminate the lease during the term. Richard, do you want to take us through the first trap? Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Lauren. Um, well, the first trap really is the failure to draft the notice correctly and to give the correct notice period. Um, as you've already mentioned, um, it's uh, vital that the um, requirements of a break clause are strictly complied with, as it can cause substantial problems if that's not the case. Um, the, one of the first things um, that any uh, tenant seeking to break a lease um, should be reviewing is the legal owners of the property at the land registry. And if the lease isn't registered, they really need to be uh, checking who is demanding um, and who is uh, paying the rent. There may, of course, depending on uh, the due diligence that's undertaken, be a need to serve more than one notice. So that also needs to be borne in mind. The, um, the notice period, so the period of time that needs to be given between the point of providing the notice and the actual termination of the lease um, should be specified in the lease. Um, and any uh, tenant, or if it's a, a landlord notice, any landlord should be looking to um, serve notice well in advance of that date to ensure there's no argument as to whether or not you've hit the date. There can be some uh, tricky mechanics in, in leases as to calculating exactly both what the actual break date is, um, but then also what period of notice should be given. Um, I've seen a few where on a strict interpretation, it would require a notice to be given on a precise day, um, which is also always something to be really uh, wary of. So it does require a lot of, um, a lot of thought, um, a lot of careful reading and interpretation of what's there. Um, it's probably worthwhile at this point um, just talking about some of those uh, difficulties. Um, for example, uh, where a break date or a, a time for serving notice is made by reference to a period from the commencement of the term or um, from an including a, a certain date, then real thought needs to be given um, to exactly what that date means 
Um, and quite often, certainly when we're doing it, um, I know uh, all of us on this call have had experience of this, uh, it, it's necessary to uh, take a second view from others just to make sure that we're completely right as to or as right as we can be about the uh, about the dates for compliance. Um, late service is an issue, um, particularly because time is of the essence as far as uh, serving break notices is concerned. So you really do need to focus on that. Um, it would probably be uh, remiss of me um, within this section not to just briefly mention um, a, a case called Manai, which lots of people talk about in terms of the uh, the great saviour of defective notices. Um, it's obviously better not to get into a Manai situation where you're trying to save a defective notice, um, but it's always worthwhile if there are issues, um, having a look at it and see whether it can come to your uh, come to your aid. Great, thank you. Yes, um, Manai is there, but hopefully you don't have to use it. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Emma, could you take us on to our next trap? Sure. Um, so another trap is failing to ensure that the notice is served correctly. Um, so break clauses almost always go to be exercised upon giving notice in writing, which Richard has just mentioned. Um, but a further trap is that the notice, once it's drafted correctly, is actually ensuring that it's served correctly. Um, so a well-drafted lease will almost always contain and express contractual provision, which will govern how notices given under that lease should be served. This could be personal service or service by first-class post or fax or even email. Um, similar to what Richard has already mentioned with drafting errors, a failure to serve uh, correctly may be fatal to the successful exercise of the break. So this does need to be looked at just as closely as actually drafting the notice and checking the notice period. Um, whether this is the case, however, will require quite close consideration of the notices clause and whether the prescribed method set out in the lease is a permissive, uh, permissive or directory uh, rather than mandatory. Uh, so as I say, the lease will usually specify what needs to be done here. If it's personal service that's required uh, for the break, that will need to be handed to the person to be served. Um, but say, for example, if they don't accept it uh, because they know what it is and they don't want to accept it, for example, um, that will then require the person trying to serve to explain what the document contains and, and then try to leave it with them or at least near them. Um, although a lease that actually provides for personal service alone is actually quite rare. Um, and what's more common is service by post, fax or email. Usually the notices clause will provide that the notice is served by being sent by one of these methods, which essentially means that notice will be served by one of these methods when it is sent, even if it's not necessarily received by the recipient. Um, the alternative to the contractual provisions, which I've just mentioned, is uh, some leases will incorporate the statutory provisions which address service of notices. So we frequently see notices, notice clauses which require notices to be served in accordance with section 196 of the Law of Property Act 1925. So this section provides that any notice is served if it is left at the last known place or abode or business in the United Kingdom of the lessee or the lessor or in the case of lessee affixed or left for him on the land or any house or building comprised in the lease. It also provides that any notice shall be sufficiently served if it's served by registered post or recorded delivery and registered post me essentially means recorded or special delivery in this context. So we can sometimes run into difficulties with section 196, um, particularly if it's a tenant seeking to exercise the break and they need to serve the notice on their landlord and the landlord is a company located outside of the jurisdiction. 
um, because as I just mentioned, Section 196 applies to companies located in the United Kingdom. So if this is the case, we'll need to explore other options, including whether the lease gives an address for service of notices within the jurisdiction, which means you can comply. Um, but if that doesn't apply, or indeed if the lease doesn't contain a service of notices clause at all, then the notice will need to be served in accordance with the common law provisions. Um, and this essentially means that you need to try and do all you can to bring the notice to the attention of the recipient. I think that um, both of these, these traps and possibly all of them could be significantly minimised um, by drafting at the point that the break clause is actually prepared. Um, I think, you know, we, we've all talked about the sort of some of the uncertainty and then difficulties with service where, for example, the landlord isn't within the jurisdiction and so Section 196 doesn't help you. Um, I've also seen leases where the um, mandatory address for service is the original landlord surveyor back in 1985, um, which just puts you in a really, really difficult position. So one of the things that is really good, would really help deal with a lot of these issues is actually at the point of drafting the break clause, someone thinking through how it's actually going to be operated throughout the whole lease, rather than what might be applicable at the time. Yeah, totally. Although you just maybe remember actually that you can provide as much as you can, but I had a situation in, I think it was 2017, where we had to serve a landlord um, who had recently purchased. It was a company located in the BVI. And uh, so we couldn't serve in the jurisdiction. There were no agents to serve in the jurisdiction. Um, so we had to serve in the BVI, um, which in normal times is, we can do that and we have contacts there and it is possible. What was difficult is that we, there'd been, I think it was Hurricane Irma. So the situation on the ground was just catastrophic and getting any contact there was, was a nightmare. So we did do it in the end, but there are sometimes weird circumstantial issues that arise, um, which you don't realize until you look at it fully. Um, so that was significantly harder work than I think we all thought it was going to be. Yeah. Very unusual to see hurricane wording in the drafting, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, so moving on to the next trap, which still um, sort of deals with issues of service, um, problems can arise where, for example, a, a managing agent for either party accepts a, a notice on their behalf. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, actually, this um, agency point works both ways. It's um, it's partly a managing agent problem, and it's partly um, a company structuring problem. It can it can affect landlords and tenants. But I mean, certainly um, taking the managing agent point on uh, from a landlord perspective, absolutely, it can cause issues. Um, when you look at the uh, the case of MW Trustees and the Tellier Corporation as being. Uh, one of the one of those key examples of um, the potential disagreements between landlords and their managing agents. Um, in that case, uh, the tenant uh, Tellula Corporation uh, served uh, what would otherwise have been a defective break notice, uh, but the landlord's managing agent, uh, with or without the landlord's knowledge, uh, sent an email effectively accepting the break notice um, and also that they were happy for the tenant Tadula to terminate the lease. And ultimately the court, when challenged, um, decided that the use of the word accept in the managing agent's email prevented the break notice from being challenged and also waived the contractual requirements on service. So obviously that can, in the right circumstances, or the wrong ones, depending on which side of the fence you're sitting on, um, cause uh, substantial issues 
um, for landlords trying to, in particular, trying to avoid leases being broken um, when their managing agents are doing things on their behalf that they may or may not be aware of. Um, the other connected point on agency uh, really affects um, the person serving the notice rather than the recipient. Um, and quite commonly within corporate structures, there will be um, a, a tenant who signs a lease, but that may not necessarily mean that by the point of um, seeking to terminate that lease, that that same company is still in occupation, could well be another company. Or even if they are still in occupation, it might be that other group companies are, do, are undertaking the day-to-day -day administration of business for, um, for that group. Um, and that takes me really uh, to a case of, of Hexstone Holdings against AHC Westlink. That was a case back in 2010. Um, and what happened in that case was that the tenant who was part of the Eddie Stobart group was uh, trying to terminate uh, quite an expensive underlease. Um, and what happened um, was that the tenant uh, company um, was still in occupation, but their parent company actually served the notice. But there was nothing on the face of that notice uh, to demonstrate that the parent company was serving as an authorised agent for and on behalf of the tenant. Um, there was no underlying paperwork that was available um, the, through disclosure and through witness statements, et cetera, to uh, demonstrate that actually there was any line of authority given behind the scenes. Um, and so um, ultimately when it, that one came before uh, the High Court, uh, the High Court said, well, actually, they're not the tenant. Um, there's no evidence of agency. And so actually um, the notice is invalid. Uh, the, the lease continues. So it, as I say, that 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 agency point sort of features both ways, one on the managing agents, making sure that managing agents are uh, fully instructed, understand their obligations and don't inadvertently accept notices. Um, the other on the, uh, the, the part of the party serving notices, just to make sure we've talked about due diligence, but just to make sure that they do that due diligence to ensure that they're serving in the right name. Um, and if they are serving on behalf of somebody else, that it's apparent on the face of the notice that they're, they're an authorised agent and that there is uh, underlying evidence of that agency. It's not uh, necessarily going to be good enough uh, just to be able to say they were agent. Um, it's better, to, much better to have a paper record to, uh, to demonstrate that agency. Absolutely. If you can avoid those traps to do with preparing the notice and then um, service of the notice by the right person on the right person. Um, unfortunately, that's only half the battle a lot of the time because often break clauses contain conditions that have to be complied with. The timing for compliance with these conditions is really important um, to, to, to note because in some tricky cases, compliance can be required at the time of the serving of the notice rather than at the expire of the lease. Um, so a careful analysis of the um, break clause is required there. Emma, I understand that there's been a recent case dealing with um, a condition which frequently comes up. Yes, so this is the vacant possession condition. So I guess the next trap is a failure to comply with that. Um, so lots of leases we come across include the vacant uh, break condition that a tenant must deliver up the property to the landlord with vacant possession. And that will be as at the expiry of the lease. 
The question of whether vacant possession has been given is not straightforward, and it will usually turn on the individual facts and circumstances of each case. However, generally, there are two aspects that need to be satisfied for the purpose of giving vacant possession. The first is that the premises will need to be empty of people, and the landlord must be able to assume and enjoy immediate and exclusive possession and occupation and control. And the property must also be empty of the tenant's chattels, although if there's a small number of chattels present, this will probably not matter, provided they do not substantially prevent or interfere with the landlord's enjoyment of the right of possession of a substantial part of the premises. So a lot of the case law that we, we've, we've seen in the past has dealt with that latter point of where there have been items left behind by the tenant and whether they have uh, prevented or interfered with the landlord's enjoyment of, of the property immediately on expiry of the lease. Um, so the case I'm going to talk about actually dealt with the opposite scenario um, and it's called Capital Park Leeds versus Global Radio Services. Um, and so the case was unusual as it was the first of its kind to address what happens if the tenant removes too much from the property as opposed to not enough um, and what the approaches of the court in this scenario. Um, so in the case, uh, the tenant was seeking to terminate its lease. The tenant's lease obliged the tenant to give vacant possession of the premises to the landlord on the break date. Uh, the tenant served a notice to terminate the lease on the 12th of November 2017. Um, and before that date, they had started carrying out quite significant stripping out works. So that included removing ceiling grids, ceiling tiles, window sills, uh, radiators and lighting. Whilst that was going on, the tenant was in negotiation with the landlord to try and agree its dilapidations liability concerning the state and condition of the premises. However, they, those negotiations never reached a conclusion. And as at the break date, no settlement had been reached and the keys were then returned to the landlord. Um, when the, the case arrived at the High Court, they found that the in favour of the landlord in that case, because the landlord argued that the property was essentially unoccupiable because the tenant had taken out far too much and the landlord was going to have to do work to put it in a position where they could immediately enjoy it or relet it to a, a new tenant. Um, so they, they, they found in, in favour of the landlord in the High Court. Um, the tenant appealed and the Court of Appeal um, overturned the High Court decision and found in favour of the tenant, which will no doubt be a decision which will be welcomed by tenants. Um, so that takes us back to the position we were prior to the High Court decision, um, which is, if in doubt, take it out and essentially confirms that a tenant can comply with a vacant possession condition by taking out more rather than less of the property. Um, so whilst the case was a success for the tenant, um, the judgment, if you read the detail, does make it clear that it's always a question of fact and degree in each case. So I think the main takeaway, in fact, is that tenants shouldn't underestimate what is required here to comply. And if they're unsure, they should take advice as, as soon as they can. Yeah, vacant possession, definitely a tricky one um, to, to comply with and uh, leaves a lot of scope for arguments between lots of different um, professionals. <laughs> So there are obviously often other conditions that are attached to the exercise um, of the break, which are they all as tricky as vacant possession or are some more straightforward? Well, I think some are very straightforward. Um, like, for, for example, um, there are plenty of cases, uh, particularly on more high value properties, um, where there is a break premium to be paid. And that quite often will say, 
a break payment premium of X has to be paid by Y date. So, you know, that's quite, that's quite straightforward in many ways um, because you know exactly what you have to pay for the premium and you know when you have to pay it by. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean it's not going to be fraught with some kind of complexity because uh, when you, know, you talk, mentioned the point earlier about the drafting of leases um, and whilst uh, I'm sure that uh, all the drafters out there will try to make sure that their drafting is as clear as possible, um, there is still quite a lot of scope for argument when it comes to the actual nuts and bolts of the exercise of the right. So um, so whilst on the face of it, some things are so simple, there are other complexities. Um, in addition uh, to that sort of case, um, there are plenty of other circumstances where um, other conditions have not been at all easy or obvious um, for compliance that have caught people unawares. Um, for those of us that are old enough um, the uh, 2011 case of Avocet against Merrill was a particularly brutal one um, for tenants. Um, these sorts of cases all seem to revolve around um, sort of downward spirals in the economy. And so you, when we had the uh, credit crunch uh, back in sort of 2007, 2008, um, there was then a short period of time before suddenly loads of tenants were trying to get out of leases. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, there's a, another raft of that now, as you sort of mentioned at the very beginning of people trying to ex exit and then landlords looking at opportunities to try to keep them in. Um, and so you know, taking the Avocet case, which came after the credit crunch, so it was a 2011 case, um, you know, that was um, a lease where there was an obligation, uh, one of the conditions um, attached to the break was to ensure that the other obligations under the lease had been complied with. And so the landlord um, uh, was able to sort of look and see, well, what breaches are there? Are there any breaches I can seize upon? And they found one, only one breach that they could they could really go after. And that was a failure to pay all of £130 of interest, which had failed to be paid um, on a, a previous late payment um, of uh, rental service charges previously. And that went to court and the court looked at it and they looked at construction of um, the break. They looked at the, um, the, the, the words used. They looked at the, um, the, the matters raised and said, well, actually, uh, technically, £130 was due. £130 wasn't paid. And so, therefore, the lease continues. As I say, that seems particularly harsh on tenants, but it was, but it, well, yeah, exactly. But, it's, but, it, but it was a real... It was a real moment, I think, for those, for those of us that are advising uh, landlords and tenants in the market at that point. It was a real moment where we just had to think, well, actually, you know, what is there that's out there that we're not already not looking at? So, you know, that meant the more forensic analysis of all of the, all of the other clauses, looking at the conditions, working out whether or not the, um, the, there was something that landlords might be able to seize upon. I know certainly from my perspective that then meant really or you know, to the extent not being done already, um, any advice to uh, to tenants, particularly in those sorts of contexts, would have a real proper analysis of all of the sums that should have been paid, that haven't been paid, that may not have been paid. Was there interest? Should an extra payment over and above anything else you think is due be made just to ensure that that problem doesn't doesn't resurface? So that's that's one issue. Um, another issue that comes up quite quite a lot. Um, and then again, this can be resolved in the drafting, but one is where you've got a break date falling between payment dates. Usually that will be falling between quarter days. Uh, what do you do then? Um, do you pay up to the break date? 
do you pay the whole quarter and hope to try to claw some of that back? Um, there's been all sorts of case law on those issues, including the MS and BMP Paribas case, uh, which wasn't a case about whether or not they had broken the lease. It, they'd done that bit okay. It was a, it was a case all about uh, whether they could claw any of the overpaid rent beyond the break date back. And that went through a number of different uh, iterations, both the uh, right up to the Supreme Court, actually. Um, again, that was another case that started life um, as uh, an attempt to exercise a break in 2011, um, but then, um, but then took a life of its own when, when some quite complex arguments came up about implied terms and, uh, and whether or not there was any general uh, sort of understanding that uh, where you had a break date mid-quarter, the, the balance would be refunded. Um, and ultimately, in that case, the answer was no. Um, so, but, but again, that you know, it's very fact specific, very um, contract specific, and so it really just does just come down to um, what's in the contract. Um, and so, drafters should be thinking about these things, particularly if acting on behalf of the tenant, um, is uh, as much clarity as possible will make compliance with those other conditions as smooth as possible. Yes, you'd hope to see a specific provision that any rent or other sums relating to the period after the break date will be returned and that removes any argument. Yeah, absolutely. Although I think the uh, the both landlords and tenants will probably be pretty clear after the MS case now. Now it's been through all of those stages, how it's going to be treated in the event that there isn't a clear ob uh, obligation. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thanks both of you for highlighting um, those traps, which can be so easy to fall into and have such significant consequences. Um, I think the key message is that break clauses are not as straightforward as they might seem, um, and that expert advice is needed in plenty of time, um, because, you know, especially things like um, vacant possession, or if you need to do an analysis of sort of all of the sums that have been paid under the lease to make sure that you're not owing interest as an asset um, could take a little bit of time to look at and to, and to get right. And if you've got a once and for all chance to terminate an onerous lease, you need to get it right. If you have any questions, do contact Richard, Emma, or your usual Charles Russell Speechley's contact. And thank you for listening. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.